thank you for the opportunity to speak today at, at, the, at, at the Laity Sunday. And um, I'm, some years ago, I was talking with the main instigators of our district's lay speaking ministries, Horace Treach and Barbara Horn. And <clears throat> I unburdened myself on them that I believe a great source of evil and injustice in our society is our nation's so-called war on drugs, which I consider to be an extension of the 1920s alcohol prohibition that is generally considered to have been a bad idea. To my surprise, they both said that it is a topic worthy of investigation and reflection, and they would support me in writing and conducting a four-weekend lay speaker's advanced course about it. I have not done that, but it did get me to thinking, if I were to have the attention of the religious community to say whatever I want about drug policy, what would I say? Forgive my shortcomings, for I am about to take this opportunity to think about it and figure out where to begin. Over the years, I have found that prohibition's greatest strength is its complexity. You will blow past anyone's attention span before you even scratch the surface. What can I say in 20 minutes or less? Well, from a religious perspective, what do we have against substance abuse? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say substance abuse is bad, because it is a form of self-destructive behavior. Then I'll say that prohibition is bad because it is an inappropriate response to self-destructive behavior. It does not solve the original problem, and it creates more problems that add to and worsen the original problem. One ray of hope I can offer to those who fear ending drug prohibition is that we have already made an uneasy truce with the most destructive drug, alcohol. Prohibition of alcohol turned America upside down in about six years. Compared to alcohol, the other drugs are such a small problem that it has taken nearly a century to get this bad. A psychiatrist once told me that he always starts his substance abuse treatment sessions with the same two questions. First, what is your drug of choice? They reply, whatever, up, down, or sideways. Then his second question is this, how does it work for you in a positive way? He told me they all have the same reaction. They pause for a long moment. Then they cock their head down and sideways a little bit and look quizzical. Then they start talking, usually with some hesitation. It is a shock and a revelation to be able to have an open and thoughtful discussion of why they like such and such a drug. Then they can get into a cost-benefit analysis and look for ways to gain positive control of their lives. When we make a thing illegal, 
this kind of discussion is suppressed. Now let me burden you with my drug of choice. Caffeine. I can talk about it openly because it is legal. I have a relationship with caffeine. I use it to regulate my sleep-wake cycle, to help me be alert when I'm working for pay, or to stay up late writing a sermon. I'm careful to take some even on my days off so that I don't suffer withdrawal. My doctor has advised me about reducing my caffeine intake, caffeine intake, and I have found that I can get my beneficial results with half as much as I used before. And I also worry about young people, even in elementary school, who consume astronomical amounts of caffeine in so-called energy drinks so they can keep up with all the activities we invent to keep them out of trouble. And so on. But what if caffeine was illegal? In 17th century Turkey, coffee was punishable by death. In 1914, the U.S. Congress passed a tax law that evolved into prohibition of heroin and cocaine. A version of this law that had been in committee two years earlier included caffeine and cannabis on that list. Cannabis is the drug that was later renamed with a Mexican slang term when it became convenient to demonize it. If coffee was illegal, would Oak Haven hide our coffee pots under the table instead of in plain sight? (laughs) Would the church building be confiscated and sold to buy police cars? Would I switch to methamphetamine because it's all that's available and it's easier to smuggle? Would I die in prison? Ha, ha, ha. So much for our comfort zone. I will only talk about one illegal drug because the effects of prohibition are the same. So let's talk about heroin. Chemically, Heroin is opium that's refined into morphine and then buffered to reduce nausea. It was a brand name introduced by Bayer Company in 1898 along with another pain relief drug called aspirin. I have here a combination letter opener and prescription crimper that was given out to doctors as a promotional item to advertise the Martin H. Smith Company's brand called glycoheroin and also something else called ergoapiol. I'm kind of curious if glyco is the same thing that they make antifreeze out of that spurred uh, one of the rounds of Food and Drug Administration laws in the 30s when someone put out a sulfa drug in a glyco base and killed 100 people. Opium comes in many forms and has been synthesized as a, as a chemical that can be virtually any strength, thousands of times as strong as the natural. Opium is a great pain reliever, but it's a bit tricky to use for two reasons. 
The effective dose can vary by a factor of 20 to 1 since the body develops a tolerance. And the lethal dose is five times the effective dose. So now let's add the illegal part to the mix. The information I just gave you is suppressed. Insofar as law enforcement disrupts the supply, the available street doses vary in strength by a factor of 50 to 1. If some combination of the 20 to 1 effective dose and the 50 to 1 available dose exceeds that 5 to 1, you will stop breathing. And your friends will be afraid to, afraid to get you help that would easily save your life. We are all told that opium will totally addict anyone and no one needs it. I believe both of these statements are false, both from my research and experience. Like many of you, I have had prescription opiates several times over the years. Many of you recall a few years ago I passed a kidney stone. Without hesitation, my doctor whipped out the Oxycontin, the stuff you hear about on the news, and they call it hillbilly heroin. Once my pain was healed, I have had no yearning for more. I have some less potent stuff I keep around in case the worn-out disc in my lower back acts up. And that stuff just sits there. I use it a few times a year, and I'm glad to have it at those times. But there are people who need it. In all countries and cultures, about three or four people per thousand seem to need opiates like a diabetic needs insulin. In our country, we serve some of them with methadone clinics, but they must go through hell to get it. I would love to tell you the yarn about how methadone clinics came to be, but it takes a little while. And I want to apologize in advance, in advance to the mother who told the following story, but I think it needs to be told. Several years ago, there was a series of overdose deaths among teenagers in North Texas. Various law enforcement groups arranged a public meeting to rally the troops to support law enforcement and just say no. About 2,000 people attended and heard lots of speeches. One woman was recruited to tell how drugs had destroyed her son. And her story went kind of like this. My son was fine until he was 15 and one day he broke his arm. The doctor set his arm and gave him some pain medicine. He discovered he really liked pain medicine. He said he needed it even after his arm was healed. He started lying to get more. When we cut him off, he switched to heroin because that's all that's available without a prescription. We sent him to rehab a few times until our insurance ran out. We used the money we had saved for his college for more rehab. We sent him to live with relatives in another state, but we found drugs are just as available there. We mortgaged our house for as much as we could get and sent him to more rehab. Then he killed himself with a heroin overdose, and he left this poem which I will read to you now. 
And the poem said basically, I hope God will forgive me, but I just can't live here anymore. I believe that young man was one of that three per thousand. That is one human cost. When you talk about the other cost, that's when you run out of time. Here are some. Texas has 16 times as many people in prison as we did in 1970. There are legislative districts throughout the United States that would not exist if not for the prisoners counted in their census. And well over half of those districts, people cannot vote. If in the time since the drug war began, Social Security and the minimum wage had increased as much as drug war spending, the average Social Security check would be $45,000 per month, and the minimum wage would be $400 per hour. Prison money comes dollar for dollar out of the education budget, while our teachers are spending their own money in thrift stores for school supplies, and our kids are hitting us up with more and more fundraisers. If we don't have money to teach them how to make a living, where will we get the money to lock them up? And on and on. If any of you have loved ones in Afghanistan, you know that they are representing a military force that claims to be trying to destroy the local economy, which is based on the artificially high price of opium. Our soldiers are literally fighting and dying to protect themselves from themselves if we left them sitting at home minding their own business. And did you know that in the summer of 2009, Dallas's first drug cartel-style execution took place outside a restaurant about 20 minutes from here? Most of the shooters got away, but the police apprehended one man with an automatic weapon who had no ID on him, spoke no English, and refused to give his name. I'm concerned. I am confident that the evils of prohibition will continue to get worse until we stop pretending that all our problems can be solved with more force and more punishment. That is the reality that God himself had to face in Exodus 32. That if he killed everyone and started over, Whenever men fell short, he would always be starting over. C.S. Lewis described it like this. God selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was. That there was only one of him and he cared about right conduct. Those people were the Jews and the Old Testament gives an account of that hammering process. So what is an appropriate response to self-destructive behavior? What if punishment had reached its limit? What if the only tool left was love? God loved his creation and wanted good for it. As a matter of fact, God so loved 
the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what did the Son of God tell us to do? I selected and read a couple of passages earlier. And we will study Jesus' words on many days. But right now I would ask you to pick up a hymnal and open it to page 40. Many of you have answered these questions multiple times. Right now, I ask us to refresh ourselves on the second question, the one that begins, Do you accept? Can you read with me? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? I do. Praise the God of freedom and power who teaches us his will that we may live and that through us others may live. Amen.